On this episode of Narcissist Apocalypse, we talk with an abuse survivor named Inez. And Inez was in an abusive relationship with a wolf in sheep's clothing. It's a story of love bombing, reenactments, empty promises, jealousy, sexual coercion, and abuse cycles. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse, everyone. I am Brandon Chadwick, and with me today, we have Inez. How are you? I'm doing awesome, Brandon. How are you? I am doing well. Thank you for asking. And if you want to be a guest like Inez is today, please do go to our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com. Top of the page, there's a button that says Guest Form. When you click on that button, it takes you to our Guest Form page. And there you can read all of our instructions and either send us an email at NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com or fill out our Guest Form and press the Submit button. And please do send it in the format that we ask for. And there is a content warning for this episode as we discuss animal abuse in this episode, as well as sexual coercion in this episode. It is a graphic description of sexual coercion, and the animal abuse happens earlier on in this episode when discussing her life in her family with her father, and the sexual coercion you will hear later on when Inez gets to specific types of abuses, she'll actually be calling out that there is a section that is about sex as a whole. And there you know, kind of, this is what you're about to hear. So that is our content warning for this episode. And today's episode is a little different. It is conventional in some ways, but then unconventional in an other way, it's not easy for everyone to tell a story in a linear fashion. It's hard to figure out what stories there are to tell. So part of Inez's story today is kind of going to be done in this like textbook kind of format. And you'll understand more when you hear it. And Inez has helped reshape our show in a lot of ways coming up with this kind of format here to give a framework for other people who might have difficulty telling their stories. And this is Inez's second time uh, talking with me as we tried a recording earlier and it just wasn't working. And we found a framework that uh, worked for her. And I'm I'm very, very thankful that uh, she came back to record for a second time and that we now have this as an example for everyone who is listening and wants to tell their story and has a difficult time figuring out where to begin, and what stories to tell. So a big thank you to Inez for being here today. So I'm just now going to get out of my way and your way. Inez, the floor is now yours. Well, thank you, Brandon, for giving me a second chance. So Brandon and I recorded a week ago. And the only way I can describe the recording process is I sort of went off into the weeds of the pond and got really lost. And then afterwards realized I didn't represent my story or myself very well. And thanks to you, Brandon, uh, you brought me back into the body of water 
And so I have prepared today to hopefully be a little bit more organized. But I wanted to share, I think I know why it was hard, which I think a lot of your listeners will resonate with. When you grew up in a home where you were not validated and you were taught like your feelings didn't matter, your voice didn't matter, there is an incredible amount of anxiety when you tell your story or share your feelings, especially when you're monologuing on Zoom. Because there was no feedback. There was no, I understand what you're saying. Um, so the nature of the recording process made it very difficult for me to stay in my centered self, if that makes sense. So I'm going to look at you and pause throughout this process. So I remember I'm talking to a human. Do you want me to give you some, uh, I know what you're saying? I would actually love that, but it would really help me if there is some reflective listening because of the anxiety that I carry as an undercurrent of, I mean, the chatter sounds like this. Maybe I'm the narcissist. How dare I talk bad about someone? I'm not being fair in my representation of them, right? So the reason why I don't do any of those things is, you know, I try to be as out of the way as possible. And because early on when doing the show, whenever I did interrupt, it could throw it threw people off because they had the way that they were going to be doing things. So I tried not to do that. And as time goes on, we went from flying blind to getting people more prepared. And then with recording on yours, I, it was partly flying blind for me. I knew a general kind of stuff, but I was a flying blind. So if I didn't know where you were going, I didn't know where, if you knew where you knew you were going. Right. And therefore I wasn't going to fully get in there because I didn't want to throw you off because I knew you were nervous already. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I welcome your interruptions and I welcome your if you have impromptu insight, I know you sometimes listen and find new insights after, right? But it would be helpful if this feels more like I'm talking to a friend or someone who at least has a backstory. I think you have three and a half hours of backstory. <laughs> Some of it is very weedy and messy and circular, but at least I feel like I'm talking to someone who has the outline. I will do my best for you today. Do I, do I leave all of that in? We'll find out. So here's my prompt for you. Um, thank you for, you know, taking the time and going back and doing notes. I hope I wasn't too harsh. I hope that you feel safe doing this and I will try to be the safest as I can be while also trying to do my job. But Inez... Let's start off your story. Uh, guess, tell us about your family. I grew up with two parents that are survivors, but very wounded people. And because I grew up in a national park in the United States, it was very physically isolated. And I was thinking about my family and how they sort of created their own little island in the woods. So my dad, 
was one of four kids and raised by a father who thought it was okay to lock him in the cellar because he was afraid of the dark or put a dunce cap on him and have him walk around the neighborhood with a sign that said, I've been a bad boy. Um, my grandfather also was physically abusive to my grandma and according to family lore, uh, this is so hard to say, but killed puppies in front of the kids by swinging them on a pole. So this gives you an idea of where my father came from. And then he enlisted in Vietnam. My mother was raised by a single mother in the 50s, which was sort of counterculture. And at one point, I think they were homeless. So my grandmother was abandoned by her mother, which is important in, as you understand the generational trauma I'm going to outline today. My grandma was kind, but showed no emotion. And my mother was the only child until my grandma remarried. And then they had a baby. And that baby, my aunt, was the favorite. And my mother would have been the ostracized black sheep, at least according to herself. And this is important because, drumroll please, I became the exact same thing. Um, so my parents had two girls. I'm the oldest of two. My sister's 18 months younger. and. My dad, on his good days, was funny, charming. Like, he never actually moved beyond being 12 years old. He would stick his fingers in our food. He was like a big kid. On his bad days, he was like a time bomb, where one moment things would be okay, and the next moment dishes would be flying. So I was a highly sensitive kid. I would be labeled that HSP kid. Um, and I was in a constant state of fear to the point I would put my dresser against my door when he came home from work. My mother was a school teacher, never wrong, I don't think, in her entire life. I've never heard her apologize nor admit wrong to anything. And my dad would leave a lot of weekends. This is important because it left my mother, my sister and I alone in the woods. And when we were little, my sister was my playmate and I think everything was okay. I think there was like solid attachment because we gave my mom what she needed emotionally. But as soon as adolescence hit, um, she started triangulating with my sister where my sister was the golden child and I was the scapegoat. And I remember being really, really angry and hurt, but not understanding what was happening. It was just, um, I wasn't liked. And the only word, and it's so hard to feel it, is contempt that kind of comes to mind. My, my mom would say my name in this way that just sounded like utter disgust. So my sister was the pretty one. It's kind of like the Cinderella story. And I was a beautiful little girl, but not my mom's ideal. I was more muscular. I was very athletic. And my mom really, really valued being tiny. And my sister was very tiny. So this body theme today, when I talk about my most recent relationship, what I realized is being rejected 
for feeling like you're physically inadequate and there's absolutely nothing you can do to fix it is a completely powerless feeling. And it also creates a level of shame that for me, it got pushed so deep, almost to the point I wouldn't have even been able to admit to myself that deep down I felt there was something wrong with me. But I carried this inside like I was never going to be enough. But I compensated for it, Brandon, by being valedictorian. And I did really well in school. And I went in the Peace Corps. And then I had about eight years of doing really cool things like teaching at-risk kids in the woods. And I went to grad school. So I kind of looked on the surface like I was really, really confident and capable. But I deep inside felt unlovable because I wasn't physically enough. And I developed bulimia which I think I would have passed the lie detector test if someone had asked me if I had bulimia because I called it like situational bulimia. Um, It's when I got emotionally overwhelmed. But the point is I had to do something with the shame or have a coping mechanism to deal with what I call a fractured self. And I was thinking after our last attempt at recording that this disconnect between what I presented to the world and how I really deep down felt looked a lot like my family. Like my fractured self looked like my family of origin. On the surface, people would say, you are so lucky to have your parents. You know, your mom is teacher of the year. Your dad is the funny guy. But behind closed doors, things were really different. I have, at that time, I know I'm smart. I know I'm capable. I can do anything I put my mind to. I went after every opportunity. So I've heard these stories with some of your guests before. There's one in particular, I forget her name. She was raised by two academics and she had an eating disorder. And she ended up in a really awful relationship where, you know, the parents had to kind of intervene. She was Canadian. I remember this story because on one level, she was really successful, right? You see this as a theme. If anyone had looked at me, they would have said, this is a badass leader who has so much confidence. But not with intimate relationships. And that's that unexamined wound is why it ended up in these serial, well, I call them narcissistic or abusive relationships. It's because I wasn't yet able to look at that deep wound of not enoughness because I compensated for it. You've asked a lot of guests too, what were your coping mechanisms during this time? I think our projected protective self can be a way that we deal with feeling insecure. Does that make sense? Uh, Yes, to me, but explain it further. Uh, I guess my assumption would be that you are this, you know, boss person in real life, in real life. You are the, you are this boss person to the world. And 
in many ways you are, but it's also a part that you're playing and that it's compensating for the person that was hurt a long time ago for you, for someone who is looking for unconditional love and acceptance and approval of the people that should be the ones that are giving it to you and taking care of you. And now when it comes to your self-worth and your self-worth and in relationships, you're going to have a tendency to react to this old wound, looking for that unconditional love figure. And you will want the approval of said person because you never got it when you were younger. And today we're about to hear your story where you put that approval and self-worth into someone else's hands. That is actually better than I could ever say it, Brandon. That's exactly it. And I think just to circle back to one more point of the wound, sort of, as I was thinking about what made me susceptible to falling for this last relationship after I had already had my aha, narcissistic, apocalyptic moment, right? How did I get sucked back in? What was different? What happened? And there's one other point that I think is important. And that's, I desperately wanted to be loved unconditionally and believed deep down that in order for that to happen, I had to give all of myself and take nothing. I wouldn't have said that out loud, but that is the deep programming is you have to do and do and do and give and give and give to be worthy of love, right? And my whole life has sort of been defined by that. I feel guilty when I charge my clients. I feel guilty if someone gives me something. Guilt was currency in my family growing up, and it was wielded as a weapon. And also the expectation that you are a burden if you share your feelings, and you're not supposed to be a burden to other people. And my grandparents, Brandon, would give us presents, and my mom would say, they shouldn't have done that for you. I mean, it was like shame was just slathered on us. It And my sister went the opposite way, but we're not going to talk about that. I have felt guilty my whole life. If someone gives me a present, I feel like I need to give them 10 back. Um, but I'm working on it. So Inez just mentioned that she already had this aha narcissist moment in the past. And that's because Inez was married for eight years to a covert abuser with whom she had two sons with, and there was post-separation abuse there as well. And then five years after that, Inez had another covert abuse relationship where it imploded, and that's when Inez began to research narcissism and realized that this was textbook. There was love bombing, devaluing, and discarding. So Inez really thought that she had everything figured out after that. And she really didn't have the full picture. So today's story is partly about Inez realizing that there are these reenactments going on from her childhood. And there's also the story here of her most recent abusive relationship. So Inez, we've already discussed a lot about your own self. So let's now talk about the abuser that you had a relationship with. So uh, where did you two meet for the first time? All right. So I met a guy in 2018 online and he would show up for our dates in an Uber. I wasn't sure 
if he was married. I say that facetiously because there was no data points that connected this man to real life. He was just fun. We went dancing. We went to a couple concerts. And I didn't learn a lot of intimate information about him because he didn't want to share anything. So I said, hey, I've met someone else that I want to date. And he was really kind and said, let's stay in touch. Well, he stayed in touch for three and a half years and then said, hey, I'm going to be in your area. Do you want to get together? And he showed up three and a half years later at a barbecue, 2022, post-COVID, that I was having for some friends. And at this point, I had sworn off dating because I was so hypervigilant and afraid. And he shows up. And from that barbecue, Brandon, he, big grin. I don't know how to describe this guy. He's 52, looks 40. He's ripped. He was a former wrestler. He has a smile that makes him look like a Boy Scout, right? He had a flannel plaid shirt on that happened to match mine, which I thought was really weird, and a baseball cap. And he was helpful at my barbecue. And he was just a really loving presence. My friends liked him. They're like, who is this guy? Like, he's some guy I met three and a half years ago. And my best friend from college, who is from the Midwest, was here. This, I don't know what to call him, the narc, is from the Midwest. This is important because there is a cultural um, connectivity I have with people from the Midwest. I was a college athlete. My best friend was a college athlete. And he was a college athlete all in the same Big Ten conference, okay? So there's a sense of familiarity that is established early on because he is from our college conference, right? I was very cautious at the barbecue of being attracted to him and also being like, I don't want to get into something right now. So the barbecue ends and he leaves and he starts texting me, but I was leaving for the East Coast to go see my family. And while I was visiting my family, I did not text him back. And this is important to the story because remember, he's a Peter Pan. This is a guy who I saw as a total player, right? I'm not, I'm still not taking him very seriously. And I'm with my family, which is sort of a pressurized environment. And I don't feel like texting, hey, how you doing, right? So I come back after a week and I test positive for COVID. So now I'm like, I can't see you because I have COVID. And he sends me groceries to my door. Now, no one knew I had COVID, but my kids. And I was really, really grateful and touched by this gesture, enough so that I agreed to go out with him. And I had not, this is going to be hard for me to talk about the sexual component, but I need to. I had not had sex in three and a half years, right? Or three, since the end of 2019. Nothing. I mean, except, you know, and I felt vulnerable. I felt vulnerable, you know, being physically intimate brings up a lot of 
feelings of vulnerability, especially when you are kind of out of the game, right? And his version of love bombing was he knew my wound. He came in and said, you take care of everyone. I want to take care of you. Wound number one, I take care of everyone. And he knew what to say. Wound number two, I want to feel desired. And he had the ability to see, I think, my vulnerability in that I felt insecure in myself. I remember I was biting my nails on our first date. And he said, I love that you're biting your nails. He kind of took joy in my anxiety. And I remember it made me uncomfortable, but he turned on full throttle the I want you. You are the most beautiful woman I have ever laid hands on. I mean, it's comical to say it out loud, but in the moment, like I really believed him, right? Uh, He would say things over and over like a script. And I remember I had a feeling in my body like this feels really scripted, right? This feels really like brainwashing because you're saying the same things over and over, like you're reading a sticky note, but he would say, I want to marry you. You're the most beautiful woman, blah, blah, blah. All of that would have meant nothing to me. I would have ran for the hills, but right before all of this got turned on, he opened up to me and he opened up about how he was abused and how he overcame that abuse and how he forgave his parents. And so now I have this person in front of me who's been through horrendous, horrendous abuse and he's overcome it. And he's not just overcome it. He's forgiven the people who abused him And in the process, you start to see him as this person who has empathy for people. And that could be, you know, couldn't be further from the truth, but you just don't know it yet. Exactly. And I'm so glad you said that, Brandon, because I think the marker I kept going back to is I thought this man has empathy. Like he's got empathy for his dad's struggles and why his dad was horrific to him. And he's got empathy for his mom. And he would say, you know, my mom is a business owner and she does everything. She's a workaholic. And I have so much respect for my mom. And he seemed to be, there's four kids, none of which, none of the kids married. So this is where I have trouble telling the story linearly because it's informed by the fact I've met his parents and I saw that his mother has no feelings and no opinions and no right to do anything other than serve his father. Like it's like a swarm of bees. There's four kids. My narc is one of them. All four children over 45, never married. They all live except for my narc around the dad and are just trying to fix or connect or do what the dad wants, right? Um, So my narc, in a way, reminded me of my dad, and this is so hard to say. There were years where I couldn't even look at my father because I was so afraid of him. 
My dad is a Marine. He's a Vietnam vet. I have never dated anyone who was in the armed forces. And this narcissist was a Marine. He had been in combat in Somalia. He was so much like my dad that it opened up a place in me that I think felt so much compassion on such a deep level for what he had been through and what he had overcome, just like my dad, that it was equating my dad with him that I think kept me rationalizing his abuse early on. So it just sounds like there's this unconscious part of you that is saying that you just want love from your dad. I think you're right. And I think it's so hard consciously. I was like always happy when my dad was gone. I didn't want him around. He was very scary. But we're biologically wired to want our parents to love us. And I had two parents that are incapable of love. They're absolutely incapable. And that realization has set me free in my adult life. But I had this wound. And going back to the body, here I am. I'm a business owner. I have a very rich life. I've got friends. I've done a lot of inner work. I run a run club. I'm, I'm taking really good care of myself. I meditate. I, you know, I, I, when he meets me, I'm sort of, uh, you know, really invested in my own self-care. And I see this man who's like, I want to care about you. I want to take care of you. And for about the first six weeks, I think that's about how long it lasted. He showed me that he wanted to do that. You know, I, he caulked my bathroom. Um, he has a lot of skills with building and tools, got a lot of tools. And I was so moved. I felt so bad because I feel guilty, but I was so grateful. And then I'd make him steak dinners and I would, you know, I tried to up, like pay attention and get him things that he needed. And I thought, wow, this could really be a relationship where each person gives a hundred percent, which is what I've always wanted. Not meet in the middle, but like, I want to give all of myself and be with someone who wants the same. And then he started talking about, I'm going to marry you. I've been waiting for you since 2018, which was comical and also made me a little like, what do you mean? You've been like texting me like, what's up? Or I'm in Hawaii. How are you? Like, that's not chasing someone. That's low hanging fruit. So it became kind of a running joke, but he would say, you're my favorite person in the whole world. Now, Brandon, I cannot tell you how many times he said these things. It was like brainwashing. I think many people get love bombed in different ways. He wasn't super generous with gifts. There weren't lavish gifts, but he was honed in energetically, sexually, and then also verbally just making all these promises, all this future faking. He basically said all the right things. And I remember thinking, well, we'll see if actions match the words. But I got addicted, I think, to the high beams. I think of high beams and low beams, like his high beams were on, right? And I felt really desired. I felt 
beautiful. I felt wanted. I felt like there was hope for my future. I also felt an immense amount of, I'm careful with the word pity, pity and compassion. Pity has a power differential, like meaning when you pity someone, you actually think you're better than them. But because I had more psychological education, I did feel this element of I was responsible for helping him learn to communicate or solve problems. And that is important because I ended up stepping into this caregiver role that I didn't sign up for. It involved when we hung out, because I have two kids, he lived two hours away, he would come here over 50% of the time and I would make dinners. I would do things that he would praise. He really appreciated them. The feedback loop was, um, no one has ever cooked for me before. You know, there was a lot of like, no one has ever done this for me before. And infused victimhood, like he as a wrestler was put on his first diet at nine and he couldn't tell me what he was fed when he was a little boy. And I love to feed people. That's like a love language. So I also felt bad for him that he wasn't cared for, right? And this is important because that's my maternal, like very maternal instincts, right? Like I want to feed him. I want to make sure he has, you know, clean clothes. And it wasn't like completely caregiving because we had this very mutual sexual relationship. But as the relationship progressed, I slipped more and more into feeling responsible for his feelings, his food, his well-being, and he did less and less and less. It's like almost like there was a point where the rules, what he said he was going to be became me. So you've painted a really good picture of who he is, who we're about to hear about, and also all of your inner workings and everything that is going to run you and how it's all going to get intertwined here. And you're all going to be, you're going to be ping-ponging off of a lot of stuff. So when does you know, in your mind, the abuse begin or at least where you really start to notice that this is what has just happened? I want to, you gave me this idea. I want to set the stage when the abuse starts as this analogy, which I got from someone I can't quote, I think on Reddit. If you and I sat down to play checkers every morning and we're playing checkers and we're having fun. And then one day I'd sit down and there's different colored checkers on the board, right? And now maybe you are doing moves that aren't like, you don't usually play them in checkers, right? And I'm like confused, like what game are we playing? And then maybe the next day there's a different board completely. And then maybe that happens a few more times. And then one morning I get up and it's the normal checkerboard. And you're like, good morning, we're playing checkers. When I try to make sense of what happened, I'm prefacing it with, I was in a relationship with the intention of connection and building a meaningful long-term relationship. I believe his objective was weaken my opponent, increase my control. For people listening, I think this is where people get stuck 
when you are not an abuser, you do not understand that the goal of the game is power and control. So I want to set up the stage with I'm playing checkers. I believe I'm in this relationship to build connection and improve our communication and make future plans. And he is going to try to drain my life energy out of me so he can wield control over me. Okay. So there is a cycle that happened over and over and over. And what it was is I'm going to test a boundary. I'm going to see how she reacts. And then I'm going to either change my strategy or I'm going to go, oh, this worked. Let me intensify it. So the first thing he tried early on was he disappeared. We had been talking every single day. And then all of a sudden he was out of sight, out of range. And then I got a text some time late at night that was like, I'm going to bed. Hope you had a good day. Anyone listening who's been in a love bombing phase where you are in constant communication and then someone is just off the radar, it sounds small, but it is completely disorienting. Now, my reaction to that, because it was early and I wasn't fully hooked, was, oh, no, you didn't. (laughs) And I was like, I'm not doing this again. And I said, hey, I'm going to go away with my kids for a few days. We're going to go camping. I'm going to be off the grid. I'm going to reach out when I get back. So if you think of this as a, he is testing a boundary and I'm basically like, I'm not going to tolerate this. He never did that again, right? So that's an abuse tactic that didn't work and that he never did again. But now you're going to tell us about the ones that did And for everyone who is listening, each tactic will have its own linear story, and then we will move on to the next tactic. And then this will be followed by three different types of abuse cycles that Inez endured. So Inez, uh, start off with the first abuse tactic, which is praise to put downs. So the first behavior is the use of verbal praise to hook me in and then its progression into subtle put downs. So it started with so much verbal praise. You're the most beautiful woman. I've never been with a woman as beautiful as you. Um, I'm so lucky. You're my favorite person in the whole world. Um, I want to marry you. Um, That's a future promise, but it was constant constant just salve of I love you I love you I love you I love you that was like month one or two and then by month three you know like most relationships that gets a little bit less but then there were a couple name calling incidents where now he called me a bitch which was really really scary when he got angry and then he started to kind of pair Baby, I would love you if you gained 150 pounds. I would throw flour on your lady parts to find your, I can't even say it, right? So he would pair, like, I'm going to tell you I'll love you no matter what, then objectify you and make you feel like a piece of meat, right? It's so hard to explain. So I would kind of laugh, but in my belly, I didn't feel right. 
Then he would take photographs that were unflattering. And we laughed a lot and he'd blow them up. All the photographs were of me, not of him. And we would laugh so hard at this. I remember one picture he took in the airplane and my arm was on wide angle. It looked wider than my head. And I was laughing at myself and he was laughing. And then there'd be another picture and I didn't want to laugh so much. Like it kind of, there was an ouch, you know, cause he was, he was actually making fun of me, but in a way where I couldn't quite call it out as mean. And this is what my dad did as well. And then towards the end of the relationship, there was very little verbal praise. It was like intermittent, you know, but then it would be followed by like no words. And when you have been told that you're loved and you're wanted and then there's desert, it you feel the withdrawal of the, like what happened to you loving me? Now you're looking at me like you don't care, right? And that is a weapon. So the last part of the verbal praise is he would use praise with warnings, like instructions. like. We were out to dinner and there was an issue at his property that he rents out with someone who was staying in his Airbnb. And I said, well, should we go? We don't want to make them upset. We want to make sure their issues are taken care of. And he said, I'm so glad you said that because if you weren't like that, we probably wouldn't be together. So there were a lot of instances where he would say, thank you for being this way. And if you weren't this way, you know, I wouldn't tolerate it. And they were instruction, it was an instruction manual. And because I'm highly sensitive, I internalize everything, including early on when he told me a story about his ex-girlfriend not bringing him breakfast when he was sleeping and they were staying at a hotel. Breakfast is for a set amount of time. And he was just so upset that she would bring breakfast up for herself and not for him. That was also part of his instruction. Every story he told me about what his exes did or didn't do was internalized as something I needed to download and then listen to, if that makes sense. And so the next behavior I mapped out is it started off, I've been chasing you since 2018. I want to marry you. We're going to live in a tiny house. We're going to go back to Hawaii. There was a lot of talk about the big future. But because my life is so busy, when I think of future faking, it's also on a micro level. It could be we're sitting and watching TV and he says, I'm going to give you a full body massage. I'm going to give you a massage. But then he would never actually initiate giving me a massage. And given my personality and a lot of my wounds, I'm not going to say, where's my massage? I consider these future faking microaggressions where he would promise something in the moment and then not follow through. And I, at the time, rationalized it. But now I believe with 100% certainty, it was deliberate and that he actually got off on the disappointment which is so hard for me to understand, but he got off on saying he was going to do something and then 
watching me sort of struggle because it's all about control when he wouldn't do it. I asked him, I said, hey, I'd like to go on a date once a month because I always was just sort of cooking and he was always just at my house when we hung out or we were doing work projects at his house. And I said, I'd like to go on like one date a month. And he's like, yes, yes, yes. But he never planned a date or did anything to follow through with that request. And I said it multiple times. So when I think of future faking, I think of also someone who's pretending to be someone they're not. And they're promising like, hey, he said for a year, I can fix your bathroom light. And he never fixed my bathroom light. That sounds irrelevant. But when there's a hundred examples of that, you start to realize that you were hope. Hope is the snare. Like I was snared by the hope that he was going to be who he said he was going to be, not who he was showing up to be. So then you have that cognitive dissonance, right? So the future faking, I think it's much more about the micro future. And then the next behavior is invoking compassion to guilting. And I put these together because guilt and compassion for me are really, it's a dance. So I have a lot of compassion and I also have a lot of guilt that comes from like white privilege, right? And it's linked to the compassion I have for people who weren't as privileged. He initially was just invoking my compassion by saying my life was so hard, but I forgive my parents. And he was making my heart sort of open and bleed for him. We had gotten back from a trip. It was Thanksgiving. And I desperately needed time to do my work. I own a business. I was exhausted. And he said, well, I really shouldn't be alone on holidays. In the past, you know, I have gone to a hotel just to be around people. And I haven't always made the best decisions. So there was sort of like this veiled threat of either he was going to binge drink or God knows what else I didn't ask. But this guilting of like, I can't, I really shouldn't be alone on the holidays. So I remember Thanksgiving, I said, well, I'll make it happen. Come. And I made Thanksgiving dinner and we had Thanksgiving and I had a great time, but I had no downtime. So the guilting started with like, you're responsible for my well-being. And then it became like, you can't leave me. Everyone leaves me. And by this point, I'm totally sort of hooked in the relationship. I wouldn't fall for that initially, but then it becomes like, I have a history of self-harm. I was wanted to die when I was seven. Um, no one loved me. I was abandoned. And now how are you going to abandon me too? So I felt like, couldn't leave him because I was giving, it, it would be like, um, I didn't want to feel the emotions in myself. I couldn't live with abandoning someone who seemed so broken. And that is so hard to say out loud, but that is not who I saw in the beginning. But this progression of you have a lot of compassion. And now over time, I'm going to make you feel responsible for my well-being and my feelings. And he would say, we forgive each other. That's what we do. The expectation was that no matter what he did, I was still 
going to be there to take care of him, if that makes sense. I cannot tell you because it is so linked to old wounds of guilt, of like so much. I felt guilty for breathing and I felt responsible for everyone around me. And now I felt responsible for him. And I felt like I couldn't leave the PS. I mean, I'm going to be hyperbolic, but the PTSD recovered Marine Corps veteran who was basically beaten by his wrestling coach father and told he wasn't wanted. How was I going to now abandon him? So by this point in the relationship, I am fully paralyzed. I feel paralyzed. You know, when you're in abuse and you're being abused and you're being ripped apart in one way and you desperately want to leave and then you have someone who's giving you this type of guilt where they're, they're putting their life in your hands for someone like you as I said, it's ripping you apart. Like it's, you know, he is tearing you in half. Exactly. At this point, like I love, I feel immense, right? I love this person. This person I have, I'm like, I would do anything for them. Anything. I would draw, I, I am, I love hard. I love my people hard. Um, I have a lot of liabilities, but I know how to love well. And I, I now, am just bought into the fact that he just needs more tools or we need to go to a week therapy or like, I'm still in this, I'm going to fix it. You know, there's a solution. We're going to make it better. Um, Because as I get to the next behavior, um, there were some other things going on with the intermittent reinforcement where I got just enough oxygen. I think of like scuba diving. Like I got just enough oxygen that I could be like, all right, let's go. We can do this. So the big behavior that I think did the most damage was the first lie he told, he admitted to lying and kind of laughed about it. I don't know how many lies he told. I think the entire relationship was marked by lies. I have no idea how many, but I know now that a through line was he was lying about everything. He said he owned his home. He didn't own his home. His parents owned it. He said X about his criminal record. His criminal record, I now know, was like 10 times worse, right? He said he had all these great friends. I met one of them. I never saw any of them, right? There was such a disconnect between what he was telling me and I think who he really was. I think he lied to himself, but the gaslighting over time of like, that didn't happen. I don't know what you're talking about. I remember I read him a quote on gaslighting and he said, well, that sounds a little extreme. That was his response. Like that seems a little intense about the power of gaslighting to hurt people because I've been gaslit my entire life and told that what I'm experiencing isn't real. It is really hard for me to root myself 
and trust myself because I'm always giving other people the benefit of the doubt. I think a lot of your listeners probably can identify with that. So the only thing to say about that behavior is it intensified and the lying went from excuses to like contrived made up stories so he could get out of situations. And the only reason I'm able to know I was gaslit is at the very end, which we'll get to, he decided to admit to me he was taking a medication that he had denied he had been taking. It's a medication for sleep that's also used to treat bipolar disorder. It's called Seroquel. And when he admitted this to me, which he had lied about, he admitted to like five other lies when I asked him. And Brandon, I didn't want to ask him any other lies because at that point I was so angry because I was right and I hadn't trusted my gut and also trying to orientate myself like, what am I going to do? This is in the very end. And he completely changed his personality. So I think what would have happened is he was going to discard me, right? For sure. He had dropped the mask. He stopped pretending. And he was an asshole. The end, like the last three weeks, I'm sure a discard was coming. I just pulled the plug first. So the next, the next behavior, the only other one I really want to talk about, because the mirroring is kind of self-explanatory. Over time, he went from mirroring my energy and my love to his mask slipping. And he would, I remember once we were talking and I was asking him questions and he's like, I didn't say you could ask me follow-up questions. And it was like he was possessed by a demon. I had never seen this part of him. It would come out like a pimple bursting. Like there was all this anger under this like bright, shiny smile. It actually was scary. So we came back from a trip and my lawyer, who shares a building with me, was uh, confused by his car. What's important is my lawyer came out and was basically like, is this your vehicle? And he got aggressive, like a bulldog, physically aggressive, like came towards my lawyer, like verbally and physically. And that was the first time I went, oh shit. I knew this was here, but I've never seen it, right? And my lawyer, who's a very cool human, was just sort of like gray rock. This hiding of who he was, I think this is a theme for so many abusers. They have to pretend they are a sheep. They have to pretend they're kind. They have to pretend they care. And it's so difficult to see the initial flashes of the wolf because it's like, I think I said this in our first recording, if you're walking through a desert and you've been in a desert and you've convinced yourself, you see the sand and the lizards, and then all of a sudden you see a fish, your brain goes, well, that can't be a fish because I'm in the desert. And that's what it feels like when you see these, like, it is like a completely different person. And you're so confused that your brain actually just throws it out. Your brain just goes, that didn't happen. It's so difficult in retrospect to understand how your brain makes sense of reality. But your brain just throws out the variables it doesn't want. So the next behavior would be control and jealousy, especially with other men. 
So in the beginning, he presents himself as a super confident, you know, good looking, easy going, like boy's boy, and really um, not controlling at all. Like, I'm going to go out with my friends. He's like, have a great time. Well, that person disappeared. So it first showed up as he didn't want to know anything about my past relationships. He was really like those flashes of anger. He didn't want to even know the names or anything about who I had dated. Now, I wouldn't have shared intimate details, but this was definitely like, I don't want to acknowledge to myself, me as him, that you dated someone else. I don't want to think about you being with anyone else but me. And I remember I was like, well, that's kind of weird because we're in our mid forties, you know, like, okay. And then it went to, we were on a trip and we were hiking. I talked to everyone, by the way, I talked to the, I'll find out the waitress's life story. I'm someone who like really enjoys connecting with people. It's part of my personality. We're on a hiking trail and there was a group of men and I only described them because they were, if you look at men and think harmless, they look like they were straight out of Caltech. I'm an engineer. They look like my engineer people. And all I said was, hey, what kind of fish did you see in the water? I have a biology background. I was really excited to see the species. And they told me what they saw. And then he got livid. He started walking ahead of me, uh, giving me the silent treatment. And I was like, wait, 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 what's happening? This is like month three. And he was upset because he felt disrespected that I had talked to men on the trail. And he also said, it's not safe for you to talk to any men on the trail. So then I'm like, is this from combat? Is this PTSD? I'm rationalizing it. But I felt controlled. And I remember there was a part of me that was really like, you can't tell me who to talk to on the trail. And I'm asking about fish and you're with me. But I also was like, you need to respect what his needs are and try to understand where he's coming from. So I said, I need to understand. And I got out of him. He felt disrespected. And I was like, I'm so sorry you felt disrespected. And I will not talk to anyone else on the trail if we're hiking again. So I kind of acquiesce, but there was this tension in me of like, I don't like this. I feel controlled, but I also see that he has issues I don't quite understand. And I was blaming it all on his history with combat, right? I was rationalizing it. And then it got to him attacking me for looking at a guy, right? Which is very typical where he would be like, why'd you look at him? And I'm like, where's this coming from? Like I have ADHD. My, my eyeballs are usually like looking for squirrels. And I felt when he did these things like attacked and there were times I just walked away other times I tried to understand. And then towards the end, I would get angry. And we'll get to that um, in the cycles of abuse. Because I felt like he was accusing me of something I didn't do. And it was harmless. I felt like he was picking a fight with me 
to get a reaction out of me eventually. And then at the end, and this is, I'm so embarrassed, but before the relationship ended, it went so far as to him instructing me that when we went to dinner, I was, he was going to be upset if I looked at any man in the restaurant. I'm a fiercely independent female. To say this out loud makes me filled with shame and guilt because I was so at that point, love me, love me, love me, like little puppy at the door. Like, do I get an A? Do you approve of me? Have I done a good job? It literally makes me want to vomit. And I remember after that dinner, I was like, did I do a good job? Because there was a group of loud men across from us. And I tried so hard because he said, I don't feel loved and I don't feel paid attention to when you don't just look at me. I need you to just look at me or I feel unimportant. Well, what are you going to say to that? Right? So I was like laser beam with my ADHD, which he knew I had, which means I have a tendency to look at lizards on the wall. I was so nervous. It felt like walking on eggshells, right? Like, and then I was looking for his approval. And that makes me really nauseous to say out loud. It's like, how did I get here? Right? How did I get here? Um, so it's important to talk about my behavior. So part of the control is you have to weaken your opponent. So I went from taking time for myself, running every day, doing yoga, meditation. Um, I need a lot of downtime uh, as an introvert. And one of the ways I know that he kept me hooked is there was no time. So he started wanting to talk to me every night. So for quote, my benefit, so that I didn't worry about him drinking, right? So then my evenings, which are normally my time to process and decompress are with him. I now was less sleep, way less sleep. I was emotionally exhausted from the cycles of abuse, which I'll get to next. And I started to physically deplete. I was drinking more alcohol to deal with the anxiety. Not a positive habit, but it's what I was doing. And I feel like I was a like a deflating balloon, right? Like all of the care that I had put into myself, my business suffered. I missed clients because I was sick or emotionally distraught. Um, it was like my energy sources were depleting. And ironically, his were increasing, right? He almost was happy when I was sad, which I'll get to in the abuse cycle. But I started doing a lot less self-care and it was gradual, but it had an effect on my ability, I think, to have enough energy to really assess what was happening. And you asked me when we first recorded, you didn't use the term ironic, but I had the education about narcissism. I've, I've done the download of the uh, lots of it, right? And I still got in this relationship. And I have asked myself the question, why? And I think that this decrease in self-care was a big part of it. 
because I didn't take the time to step out of it. So I think we've gone through, like, there were a lot of abusive behaviors, but those are the main ones. The last one is sex, which is really important because it's one of the ways I was hooked in this relationship. It went from being really, really good. So in the beginning, it's a match made in heaven. And then over time, it was obvious that when I tried to set a boundary, I was going to be punished, meaning if I said, I don't want to have sex, he was slapping himself on my face, trying to get me to have sex with him. And sexual coercion comes in many, many forms. And even though he was laughing and then he's like, I'm sorry, I've just really, you know, you're just so desirable. It didn't feel good in my body. And so the pinnacle of sort of when I had an aha moment was we were on vacation and we, I said something to the effect of, I wish you were more attentive. Now I had never given him any feedback sexually that wasn't positive. And his reaction to that comment was, well, I guess you just ruined our relationship. And I knew in that moment exactly what that meant. It meant you have a purpose here and that is to build me up and prop up my false self. And the minute you tell me that there's room for improvement, you have burst my bubble and you are no longer useful to me. I knew it in my belly. I couldn't have said it like that, but I knew what he meant when he said, well, you just ruined our relationship because I told him I wish he was more attentive. And then at the end, as the sex theme goes through, by the end, there was an incident just before what I think would have been his discard, where I felt completely objectified. We were in a bunky cabin in the woods visiting my family. We had not had any alone time together, and he basically used my body to get off. And then afterwards, when I said I was hurt, he got angry, stonewalled me, and didn't talk to me for 18 hours. So I was punished for saying it hurt. Now, I wouldn't have stayed in this relationship, but the cycle, which we're going to get into next, is that then he would come back well after the fact and he would apologize. And he would have all the right words. And a lot of them were my words, my therapist or whatever. And he would use all the right words, but it was after I was so depleted and hurt and stonewalled or not talked to or verbally threatened. And then he would come back and say, I'm so sorry. And that was this, that is uh, one of the cycles. So the number, there were three main cycles of abuse that repeated over and over that I identified. And the first was if he felt slighted and slighted could be as simple as this story. I had gotten tickets to a fundraiser. They were given to me. And on the day of the fundraiser, I realized that I might have only been given one ticket and I was under the assumption that I was given two. And I thought, well, there's always a solution. We either have to sneak him in the back gate or I'm going to pull some strings to make sure I have an extra ticket. I am only on, 
I solve problems, we're going to fix it. So I went to him and said, hey, we may have to sneak you in the back gate. I was being funny. And he erupted in rage. And I was so caught off guard. I was like, I thought he had misunderstood me. I was like, wait a minute. And he kept saying, did you know you only had one ticket? And I said, no, I, I thought I had two. Mind you, everything we went to was always something I planned or had tickets to. So there's this element of entitlement underneath it all, right? Like this isn't his event. I said, oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't know. For five hours, five hours, it was like word salad, circular conversation. My body was shaking. I didn't understand what had happened. This is just one example of, I, it felt like he didn't even speak English because I'm like, you're not understanding. This isn't personal. I'm so sorry. I didn't know. And he felt unimportant and slighted. So when this would happen, he would punish me with word salad, meaning exhausting conversations that go round and round and go nowhere. Silent treatments, gaslighting. He would call me names or he would minimize my emotions. And then I would end up getting frustrated, confused. I would apologize. I would wonder if I'm the problem. And then eventually in the relationship, I would get angry. And that's in like the last two months. And I'm going to pause on that because that anger reaction is a way that he, that's another abuse cycle. So I'm going to focus on the fact that when he felt slighted, he would punish me. And what it felt like is how dare you not put me first? Or if it was anything where he didn't feel like he was on the pedestal, which I didn't realize until later. And then over time, over the relationship, what would happen is the punishments would get more intense or the silent treatments would get longer. And he seemed to get more sensitive. So this fake persona in the beginning of being easygoing, and he was cool with changing plans, and he understood I had kids, that all changed over the course of the relationship. The second cycle of abuse, which was the most brutal for me because it's my core wound, there was no room for me to have feelings growing up. Expressing myself is extremely difficult because I'm so used to not feeling validated. And then when you're not validated, you don't feel safe. So I remember distinctly the first time I had the guts to share that he had hurt my feelings. It was like month three. This is a big deal for me. And I've read a lot of books. And I'm telling you, Brandon, if you could do it textbook, this is what it sounded like. This is going to be really hard for me to say and probably really hard for you to hear because it's hard for me to share my hurt. I mean, that tone, no accusatory, no anger, just like, I got to tell you that this hurt my feelings. And his reaction was basically, fuck you, bitch, right? Silent treatment, stonewall. There was a, a premiere we were supposed to go to. He called me a bitch, hung up the phone, went to the premiere and dropped off the radar overnight. And it was because I said I was hurt. His mother, when I was with his mom and dad, said to me in the kitchen, I don't get upset. What good is it going to do? His mother had completely given up having a feeling, voicing an opinion, 
voicing a concern. She says, I don't get upset. What good is it going to do? I feel like I was being trained to be exactly like his mother. And there were a lot of verbal sort of cues along the way that uh, support that. But basically, I was being taught that if I showed a feeling that didn't agree with how he was feeling, it was not going to be okay. And then the next time I learn, eh, is it really that important that I share a feeling? Probably not. And that was what happened over the course of the relationship. It became much more like, just suck it up. Just like, be resilient, make the best of it. Like, it's not worth it, you know? But then I got small. I got really small, smaller. And the third cycle of abuse, there are many, but these are like the three that I'm hoping someone will go, oh, that helps me put words to what was happening. Is, and this is so hard to understand. He was a, a impulsive, adrenaline junkie. I think if he got bored or felt small in some other area of his life and wanted to like feel powerful, exert control, he would bait me. And he would bait me with either bad behavior and see how I react and then get off on my reaction. Or it became later, I'm going to bait you in public. I'm going to say something that's going to upset you. And I'm going to stand back, hold my arms and watch how you react. Because that cycle of abuse is, I would be so focused on my shame on how I reacted that I would end up apologizing for my reaction feeling so bad about getting angry and completely forget what happened initially. And this culminated in like the seventh month of our relationship. We were on a trip and I had a trauma response. I started at like a run, like I needed to run and get away. And I don't even remember because it was a trauma response. But afterwards, what I do remember is crying for 12 hours and just blaming myself that I have more trauma work to do and I'm so sorry. So the script got completely inverted. I can't even tell you what he did because he did it so often, whether it was accusing me of something I didn't do or belittling me or exerting control. The script became I was right back into saying I'm the problem. And over time, that is where if I had stayed in this relationship, I think it would have killed me because I was now buying into his version of reality that he wanted me to believe, which is I'm the problem. He's not the problem. And now the problem is my reaction. And I've had, a, I had an eight-year relationship like this with a pastor, which is not what this is about. But I know this cycle really well. I know that I'm going to poke you and I'm going to get off on the fact that I know how you're going to react and I'm going to just step back and watch you completely lose your shit. And then I can go, I'm not the one who's having a problem, right? It's so insidious. And I think it, it doesn't happen to all women, but for the women that it happens to, it's usually with these master um master manipulators who learn they read you like a braille sheet 
The last part I think is I, although I have a lot of shame about having had a relationship that had these abusive patterns after sort of realizing and studying, thinking I was never going to do it again, right? I got out. I got out in month 11. It wasn't four years of my life. It, the, I didn't let the abuse escalate to the point I know in my body and my heart it would have. And I grew from this. It shed a big spotlight on some unexamined wounds in myself that I have not worked on. And it's only been three months since it ended and I'm no contact for three months. He did try to gaslight me and send me things like, so glad we were brought back together, like kind of denying the breakup. And my neighbor said he was stalking me, like driving by my house. Um, But I've had no contact with him. And I feel like it has invited me into a space where I have to do deeper level um, healing. So because it was an addiction, I know uh, I was trauma bonded, right? which I don't think I have to explain what that is. I knew from watching Guy Winch's podcast on how to heal a broken heart that this was an addiction. And if I looked at his Spotify and all of his, I'm going to kill myself playlists, which I did in the first couple weeks, I knew that if I kept looking, because I'm not on social media, Spotify would have been the only place where I could see his like expression of anything to me. And he knew that, um, that I would just feed this addiction. So I started a run club and this is an addiction. It's no different than any addiction, social media, drugs, alcohol, or was trauma bonded. You cannot feed the addiction. So this podcast is so important for me. You are so important to me, Brandon, because this is my epitaph. Doing this podcast was deliberate. I reached out to you. I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful for the people that have shared their stories on your podcast because I'm using this sharing of my story as my final punctuation of this learning experience, this relationship. And I immediately filled my schedule with self-care. So I started a run group with some really amazing, I call them misfit toys. Most of these people have not been running, right? And we had our second run this morning and we're doing a trail run in 10 weeks. So I sort of diverted my focus to other things and also the benefits of exercise for dopamine release is very much like what happens when you're trauma bonded. So my advice is care for your body well, don't eat a lot of sugar, exercise, meditate, take care of yourself. Um, It's so hard not to ruminate and go back over things. But the longer you do that, the longer you delay healing. Well, Inez, I want to thank you for being here with me today for a second time. You told your story in a different way today, in a way that we haven't done things before. Or if we have done them, I don't remember doing it in this way before. 
and to go from our last recording to this one and how you laid things out, I think for a lot of people out there who have a lot of trouble on knowing where to begin to tell their story, how to tell their story, how to tell an effective story, and we're trying to keep people to listen to your story the whole entire way through and to learn from what you have to say and to validate someone's experience, to give them language as well. And it's a difficult thing to do. And you are in a, in a, in a relationship that was you know, less than a year. And we're also telling the story of your backstory of, of where you came from. And there's some people that have 20-year relationships, 30-year relationships. It's hard to pick what is the story do I tell? What is important? What is not important? And today you gave a framework and a different way to tell stories. And it was, it's clear the way you did it, you know, the way you're able to kind of break down, this is what I want people to learn. And this is how I'm going to show it to you. And and you were a teacher today and a lot of people uh, learned from you and you are helping a lot of people by Um, just sharing your story in general, but you've just helped this show in a huge way and so many other people out there of a different way to put their story together in a way that we haven't been doing it before. So I thank you for being here today by helping me, helping everyone else, you know, tell stories in the most effective way and easiest way because it's not a one size fits all. And I've been trying to fit people into a one size fits all. And it always, it doesn't work like that all the time. And sometimes you learn from when things kind of implode. And in our first one, I knew it wasn't going the way it was. You knew, you know, it wasn't going great either. And sitting there and kind of talking with you and trying to figure out like what is the best way to go about it. And it's hard to translate that. And I can say a lot of words and it's sometimes it's just words. It's, this is visual as well. Like what you've written down, it's hard to say things and be like, cause it makes sense in my head, you know, it should make sense to you. And so what you gave here today is fantastic. And uh, it's just wonderful. And I, it's, it's going to be able to, help so many other people out there. So, um, you know, a really just a, a big thank you. You've changed the show. Well, I, I have to say this, Brandon, this came from you. So I think there's a dance. I didn't feel comfortable with you when we first recorded. And you said a couple things that allowed me, I think you gave me permission to think in a different way and gave me some inspiring ideas. And this framework helped me heal. So thank you for being part of that. Well, I, well we worked together. We did. <laughs> we were a team. We were a team. <laughs> um, no, but when, when we get to these points where it's, it's very difficult for people to tell their stories, that's why I say at the end of most episodes, you know, people don't understand how difficult it is to tell your story. And a lot of the times the ones that you hear on the show are the ones that understand it in my way of thinking. That doesn't mean that I understand your process or your way of thinking. And it's difficult and, you know, take being able to take the time with you to, you know, carve this out. I don't have a lot of 
time. I don't have a lot of extra time and being able to do that with you, um, was a good process for both of us to learn. Um, yeah. or, or at least it was for me. I'm putting words me, in your mouth. It was actually, it was really life-giving and I'm really, really grateful. I know I said it before. I'm so grateful for what you're doing, Brand. You're, you're really helping a lot of people. Well, Inez, thank you so much for those kind words. And if you want to be a guest like Inez was today, please do go to our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com. Top of the page, there's a button that says Guest Form. When you click on that button, it takes you to our Guest Form page. And there you can read all of our instructions. And either send us an email at NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com or fill out our Guest Form and press the Submit button. And please do send it in the format that we ask for. And if you are someone that needs support, we here at Narcissist Apocalypse have a support group. So at NarcissistApocalypse.com, top of the page, there's a button that says support group. When you click on that button, it takes you to our very own safe social network. And inside, you'll see that we have Zoom meetings every Wednesday night, Thursday afternoons, and Saturday nights. We also have forum boards for you to post on to get the validation that you need from survivors just like you. It is a wonderful group of people on there, so you can share your experiences with all of them and make friends as well. So if you need support, join our support group today. And if you need even more support, please do visit our friends at domesticshelters.org. At domesticshelters.org, they have articles and resources to help you make sense of what you're dealing with. They have every phone number and email address and web address for shelters and agencies, no matter how big or small the town you are in, domesticshelters.org has it there. It is a wonderful free resource and organization. So if you need extra support, please do go to domesticshelters.org. And we have a new friend to the show, and it is a place called Shelter Movers. And Shelter Movers can be found at sheltermovers.com. And Shelter Movers helps survivors of domestic violence transition to a better and safer life. And it is a volunteer organization, a donor-supported charitable organization as well. It is currently only in Canada, but they are looking to move into the United States. And what they do is they help coordinate moves for people who are getting out of domestic violence. They help you to safety and get all of your things out of your home and into storage, all of your belongings into storage. And they can do this for your pets and livestock too. It is a wonderful organization. So if you need help from them or just want to donate to them, please please go to sheltermovers.com. And that is it for today's story. So for myself and Inez, we hope you have a good night.